Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So we recently mentioned the surprisingly late date for the last public guillotining in France on the show. That date was 1939, and the episode it came up on was the one about the punitive Benin expedition. Just to avoid any confusion, if you look up the last execution by guillotine in France, that was much later, 1977. The distinction here is that the one we are talking about was the last time it was public. And we'll talk about why it was the last time it was public. Uh, It just so happened that I actually had the case tied to all of this, this last public guillotining, on my list And that kind of popped it up to the top. So we are going to talk today about the crime and the trial. Uh, We will get to the execution next time because this became an accidental two-parter. In a way, because I feel like when you usually look at articles about this or mentions of it, they're very brief and they really don't capture all of the many things that were going on. Um, in terms of how the police were handling things and what was going on with the family of one of the people involved, because we have a lot of coverage of one particular victim, and how it all played out and the kind of accidental way that the person slash persons involved in all of this were apprehended. Um, 
it's a difficult story, aside from the fact that there's like a missing person and and we do have record of the pain of a family going through that. There is also some accusation of lackadaisical police attention to the case. And ultimately, there is so much evidence that was discovered that it seemed almost like uh, they didn't know what to do with it all uh, because it was pretty significant. And it is probably obvious by now, but just in case, this episode is going to involve discussion of violence, specifically murder, and quite a bit of it. Uh, and then this is part one of two. Second one will also have violence as well as execution. In 1937, Jean DeCoven was 22. She was a dancer from Boston, Massachusetts, and had moved to New York when she was still young. She went to NYU and studied dance in both New York and Chicago. She had recently started teaching classical dancing and ballet to about 20 students in a studio on the bottom level of the apartment building where she lived with her mother. She went to Paris in July of that year for a vacation. She arrived on the ship the Normandy on July 19th and stayed with her aunt, Ida Sackheim, who she called Saki. They stayed in a hotel on the left bank. And early on in their stay, a German man approached Jean in the lobby of the hotel room and offered to help the two women as an interpreter. They had been struggling to find someone who was staying in the hotel ambassador. And Ida Sackheim described him as having, quote, the most gracious smile she had ever seen. Jean, who was very outgoing, was charmed by the idea of having met an interesting stranger while she was traveling abroad. Later that night, Jean DeCoven wrote a letter to a friend about the encounter, writing, quote, I have just met a charming German of keen intelligence who calls himself Siegfried. Perhaps I'm going to another Wagnerian role. Who knows? I'm going to visit him tomorrow at his villa in a beautiful place near a famous mansion that Napoleon gave Josephine. This was not really a villa, but an apartment, but that would be a minor detail in the story. Jean was just excited to spend time with a local. So on the afternoon of July 23rd, she went out for her date. She was supposed to attend the opera that evening to see a production of Ariadne and Bluebeard. You talk about it in the behind the scenes, but that's a particularly strange bit of coincidence. Uh, But she never showed up for that performance, nor did she return to the hotel that evening. Jean's Aunt Ida was, of course, deeply worried. And the next morning, Miss Sackheim received a telegram that everything was fine, which, of course, was incredibly suspicious. Later that day, there was another missive, and this was even more troubling. This was a letter that said that Jean was safe, that she had been kidnapped, and that she would be returned after a $500 ransom was paid. Naturally, Ida Sackheim took this to the authorities, notifying both the American consulate and the Paris police. But their reaction was really not what she expected or hoped for. She was frantic, and the police seemed to think that in all likelihood, Jean just had a little fling and hadn't come home yet. Authorities assured her that this kind of thing happened all the time when tourists from the United States went out partying and either slept somewhere else in the city or just couldn't find their way back to their hotel for a bit. This letter seemed like somebody was just playing with Sackheim. And this case, on the surface, did seem a little like Jean may have gone on a date that simply hadn't ended yet. Aunt Ida had mistakenly described the man involved as a handsome Swiss gentleman. And authorities took that as a further indicator that this was probably just a romantic escapade rather than anything sinister. And Jean was an adult who had gone out with this man of her own accord. 
But the kidnapper, or the person who was saying they were a kidnapper, continued to send letters, and they started coming with requests, like that Ida should place notices in the Paris edition of the New York Herald Tribune that was popular with tourists, asking Jean to reach out. This was really like them setting up a code. The wording indicated to the kidnapper that Sackheim had received the missives and was cooperating, and sometimes she would place them when they had not had a response that she expected. So those placements were listed in what's called an agony column, sort of like misconnections, but usually for scenarios where somebody in Ida's exact position would try to urge a missing person to get in touch. Uh, That term, sometimes also called agony ants, is also used for advice columns sometimes. But in this case, this this was trying to find missing people. The brief ads that Sackheim had the paper run were short and simple. They said things like, Gene, please come back. Or, Jean, do not understand your way of acting. Want proposition immediately. And although they had been sort of dismissive of the situation, the police were following the ads to see if there was any response in the paper. And they also sort of worked quietly on the investigation without really disclosing that was what they were doing. They also kept an eye on the proposed meetup spots that the kidnappers' notes had indicated when they sent things to Ida, suggesting she give them some money. But the police were not super wily about this, and eventually Ida got a postcard that read, quote, Remind, the least sign we have of the police and we don't send nobody to get the money. But then, Jean's traveler's checks started to be cashed around Paris. If you've never encountered traveler's checks, they are an alternative to currency, but they offer a little bit of protection over carrying cash. So think of it as kind of like a gift certificate, but not a specific retailer. The traveler could, and still can, although this isn't that common anymore, purchase traveler's checks through the bank, and then know they would be able to use them in other countries without having to go through a currency exchange. If you lost your traveler's checks, the bank usually had coverage for them, so it wasn't like if somebody just stole your money out of your wallet. These have mostly fallen out of favor in the digital age, but they were really common in the 19th and 20th centuries. They're guaranteed, traceable, and replaceable. So when some of the checks that Jean had purchased before going to Paris were used with obviously forged signatures, the police started to get a lot more serious about the case. Yeah, normally when you purchase traveler's checks, which I have done, I think, exactly once in my life. Me too. um, You had to sign it there at the bank in front of a bank official. And then that signature is kind of what establishes it as your traveler's check. So any subsequent sign-over has to also include a second signature that should match the first. So these checks were worth $10 U.S. each. And over the course of a few days, 24 of them were used in Paris, in banks, high-end shops, and the Paris Exposition. When investigators started tracing the transactions and interviewing clerks and shopkeepers, it became apparent that there were multiple people involved and that a lot of people had been pretty lax in taking those checks. There were descriptions of four different people, two men and two women, who had forged Jean's signature, and all of them had been using Jean DeCoven's passport as the ID. And as these forgeries piled up, the police decided to announce their investigation publicly, which they did on August 7th. The forged traveler's checks stopped once the story hit the papers. And at that point, Jean had been missing for more than two weeks. Ida could not bring herself to believe that Jean might be dead, but she felt certain that the man they had met in the hotel lobby was involved in Jean's disappearance. 
Jean's photo was published as part of the coverage of the kidnapping. This led to a seemingly endless string of tips coming in from people who thought they had seen her. This also meant that the public was formulating their own ideas about who Jean was and what really happened. Plenty of people and some police suspected that because Jean was an entertainer, this whole thing was a publicity stunt. Others thought she had just run away from her aunt, either to lead a thrilling or, as some people believed, a debased life. Some people called her aunt's hotel, trying to get money in exchange for information that they claimed to have. Yeah, uh, Ida had said, like, I will give rewards for information, and so all kinds of fake info started to flood in. The search for Jean was also covered in the U.S., Canadian, and English press at length. Initially, these were brief mentions, and they often cited the DeCovens' family dismay at feeling pretty hopeless and kind of dismissed by French authorities. But as details emerged about the case, there was a web of connections that involved those countries we just mentioned, as well as Germany, and press coverage kind of shot up. Nine days after the story broke in the press, Jean DeCoven's brother Henry got to Paris. He announced that their father, Abraham DeCoven, was offering a reward of 10,000 francs. Henry stayed in Paris for a month, in part to try to convince Aunt Saki to come back to the U.S. with him. Henry believed that Jean was dead, and the authorities did as well by the time Ida Sackheim and Henry DeCoven set sail for home on September 18th. When Henry DeCoven got to New York on September 25th, he told the U.S. press that he felt the Parisian police were not taking the case seriously. At that point, there was this sort of pervading feeling that Jean DeCoven was doomed to become an unsolved missing persons case forever. What happened to her was discovered, although it did not happen for several months. We mentioned that Ida Sackheim thought that Jean's friend Siegfried was involved. We will talk about who exactly he was in a moment, but first we will pause for a sponsor break. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. The man at the center of this whole thing was not named Siegfried. He also wasn't named Bobby, which was what he had told Ida Sackheim she could call him. His name was Eugen Weidmann, and when he met up with the two tourist women from the U.S. offering to be their interpreter, he already had a lengthy criminal history. Eugen was born in Frankfurt, Germany on February 15, 1908, and he was a really smart kid. And from a very young age, he was in trouble with the authorities. At the age of 14, police identified him as the ringleader of a group of schoolboys who had committed several robberies. For the next several years, he got into one scrape after another as he was discovered to have committed a variety of petty crimes. His parents decided that the best thing for 18-year-old Eugen was to remove him from the environment and the friend group that he had been running with, and they sent him to a school in Canada in 1926. It was not long before he was arrested and jailed in Canada, first serving three months in 1928 for forgery, and then once again in 1929, this time serving a one-year sentence for theft. He and a group of accomplices had held up the paymaster of a wheat company in Saskatchewan, which is where he was working as a farmhand. After he served his sentence, he was deported back home to Germany. In Germany, he was in hot water again pretty soon. In 1931, he was found guilty of assault and robbery and was sentenced to five years in prison. While he was incarcerated, he was by all accounts well-liked by prison officials because he was smart and polite and didn't cause trouble. During his time in prison, he worked in the prison library and he spent that time well. 
This was part of why he seemed so erudite to Gene. He read a great deal. He studied all manner of topics. He loved Wagner and could speak about opera at length. That was something he had also studied in prison. Eugen was incredibly smart. He had a gift for languages. He spoke English and French fluently and could also manage in Portuguese. When he was released from prison, he lived with his parents for about six months, and then he left for France sometime in the spring or early summer of 1937. We'll see differing dates issued there. This was, to his parents, another chance at a fresh start. Eugen would later say he left Germany to avoid having to enlist, and this was, of course, a time when Germany was in turmoil and events were already in motion that would lead to World War II. But unbeknownst to Eugen's parents, their son actually had plans. He was going to meet up with some of his friends from prison in Paris. That, of course, put Eugen Weidmann in Paris at the time that Jean de Coven vanished. And then there were several other crimes in the area that seem on the surface completely unrelated. Jean had disappeared on July 23rd, although the case was kept private until the first week of August. A month after the press ran the Jean DeCoven kidnapping story, a man named Joseph Kufi was found dead, shot in the back of the neck in a wooded area. This happened not in Paris, but near Tours, which is a little less than 240 kilometers or 150 miles southeast of Paris. This man was a chauffeur. He ran his own small luxury limousine service, and he had picked a client up in Paris where he lived, then was not seen alive again. It was reported that he had been robbed of 2,500 francs. Yeah, we'll talk about those money numbers <laughs> a bit because they're really inconsistent in the reporting. Another seemingly unrelated murder happened on October 3rd. A woman named Jasmine Keller traveled to Paris to respond to a job posting for a travel companion who could also cook and manage the health needs of the client. Sometimes this is listed as like a, a nurse companion job. It doesn't matter because that job was not real. She was shot in the same manner as Kufi, and the money she was carrying, reported as 1,400 francs, was stolen along with a ring. A third murder took place on October 16th. This time, the body of Roger Leblanc was found in a parked car, shot and robbed. In this case, the body was wrapped in a curtain that had the initials MB written on the tag. That curtain and information from LeBlanc's girlfriend that he was meeting somebody named Pradier on business led police down a rabbit hole. They were looking for anybody with the name Pradier or the initials MB. Both of those efforts, which totaled up to more than a thousand people who were questioned by the police, those were fruitless. Then a young Jewish man from Germany named Fritz Frommer vanished on November 22nd. Like the other murders we have just mentioned, he was shot and robbed. And then there was one more shooting and robbery victim who was killed on November 27th. This time, the deceased was a realtor named Raymond Le Sobre who was showing a small house to his prospective renter when he was killed. And it was Le Sobre's murder that finally offered a clue that tied all of these seemingly unrelated crimes together. Le Sobre was found at the rental property, and one of the pieces of evidence retrieved at the scene, which was in the Paris suburb of Saint-Cloud, was a business card with the name Arthur Schott on it. According to this card, Schott was a traveling salesman and was based in Nice. The detective on the Le Sobre murder case, who was Commissar Primbourne, tracked down Arthur Schott, who at the time was in Strasbourg. Schott was told he needed to come to Versailles for questioning, which he did. 
He explained that he had distributed thousands of those cards. One of them had been given, he said, to his nephew, Fritz Frommer. That was indeed the same Frommer who was killed on November 22nd. There was already a connection between Frommer and Eugen Weidmann. They had been in prison together in Germany, and as you recall, Weidmann was incarcerated for robbery. Frommer was incarcerated as a political prisoner. He was there because he had criticized the Nazi party. At this point, no one knew that Fritz Frommer was dead, and no one had connected him to Weidmann. When Primborn followed up on the Frommer lead, he discovered that the young man had left his hotel on November 22nd and never returned. They learned this from the hotel clerk, and the hotel had just chalked it up to him skipping out on his bill. Since this was suspicious, and it kind of seems in some readings of reports here that Fromer may have been a suspect at this point, the detective next tracked down a contact that had been on Fromer's hotel paperwork that led him to another uncle. And this uncle mentioned that his nephew had not been showing up for family dinners, which he normally did, and that he knew that his nephew had been in contact with a man named Carre, who he had known in prison. The uncle believed he lived somewhere near or in Saint-Cloud in a villa called La Vouzie. As an aside here, we mentioned before, but I really want to reiterate, when we say villa, because it comes up a lot, you might be conjuring up a luxury vacation home, and that is absolutely not the case. Uh, In some usages, it actually refers to a fairly modest space that's often shared with roommates, a pretty common usage in France in the 1930s. And that is what we're talking about here, a pretty simple cottage that would have been like multiple renters under one name. Yeah, I'm imagining like a, it's it's got little trellises with climbing vines growing up overlooking a vineyard and that's not, <laughs> that's it's, not that, You would be very disappointed. <laughs> the next bit of detective work was to start asking after Carrere among various rental agents of Saint-Cloud in search of this villa. And Primborn discovered that Marie Brow, a landlady, did have a renter named Carrere. And on December 8th, the detective assigned two of his men, inspectors Emile Bourgin and Ange Poignant, to watch the front of this little cottage where Carrere was living. When he came out, there was a skirmish. So this person that they were looking for was, in fact, Eugen Weidmann. And he at first asked the men who they were when he saw them outside his house. And they identified themselves as tax officers. And the three men began walking into the house to talk. Uh, There is some speculation and some indications in some of the testimony that when they had flashed their ideas tax inspectors, he had actually seen that one of them was a policeman. So they walked into the house, and once they were inside, the suspect turned and fired a gun three times. Both of these policemen were wounded. One bullet had passed through Bourgain's hat, grazing his head. The other had hit Poignant in the shoulder. But the officers, who were unarmed, put up a fight. In a hand-to-hand struggle, Bourgain knocked Weidmann out with a hammer that he had found in the home, and Weidmann, unconscious, was taken into custody. Some of the most common photos that turn up in a search for Weidmann online show him with a bandage around his head, And that is because it is right after he was arrested, and it is from the injuries that he sustained during that fight. Right away, there were two very large, damning, and obvious clues at Weidmann's home. Two cars, one belonging to the chauffeur Koufi and the other to real estate agent Raymond Lesaubre, were found behind the house. 
We'll talk about Eugen Weidman's statement to the police in just a moment, but first we'll take a break, hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Thank you. 
Once he was taken in by police, Eugen was, of course, questioned. After a few hours in custody, he became completely cooperative, and he was a study in seemingly disparate temperaments. He gave his confession directly and calmly. He told the police that he never lied, and that actually did seem to be the case. The details that he gave about how any of the murders had happened was supported by the evidence. And he gave them a lot of details. And that's the thing. This all was a lot of discussion of very brutal murders that he was saying he had done, uh, including the real estate agent Le Sobra, which was the murder that he had initially been suspected of, and then the chauffeur Koofy, the cook-slash-nurse Keller, the press agent LeBlanc, the associate from prison, Frommer, and the American tourist, Jean DeCoven. Weidman had taken souvenirs from each of his victims, which he disclosed in his confession. He kept Madame Keller's wig. He was wearing Raymond LeBlanc's suspenders when he was taken into custody and carrying his lighter. Although they were too small for him, he also kept the real estate agent Le Sobre's shoes. From the beginning, it had been believed that Weidmann was not alone in his crimes and had several accomplices. It was originally thought as many as nine people were part of his crime ring. Eugen initially denied that anyone else was involved, but he did eventually begin to give up information that confirmed detectives' theories, although he never mentioned anyone by name. His group had planned to lure tourists, particularly English and American tourists, to Weidmann's home in exactly the way he had done with Jean DeCoven. Their goal was to target people in hotels or nightclubs, introduce themselves in the guise of being helpful or just friendly, and then arrange to meet again later. Or they would place an ad in the paper for a job or respond to job ads themselves. The goal here was generally robbery, and murder kind of became a secondary part of it. After Weidmann, the most sought-after member of this ring was Roger Millon, a Parisian man several years younger than Weidmann. Weidmann told authorities that Millon had actually been the one to kill Roger Leblanc, and Weidmann offered guidance and that his accomplice had also helped him kill Janine Keller. When Millon was questioned, he told police that he knew about the crimes but had not committed them. Yeah, we'll get to that questioning later. Uh, Jean Blanc was also a very unique accomplice. He was, it seemed, kind of in it for the thrill and not much else. And he actually paid for the privilege of being part of Weidmann's gang. Blanc, unlike the others, had money. He didn't need to rob anybody. He was from a good family, and his mother gave him a pretty generous monthly stipend to live on. He had given Million and Eugen Weidmann 13,000 francs over a period of time to participate in their crimes. But Jean Blanc was also not really a newbie to crime when he joined up with Weidmann. Uh, he had been involved in a counterfeiting operation with Million in Germany that had landed them in prison, and that was where they met Weidmann. And this core team had been together since the beginning. The day Oregon traveled to Paris, Mion and Blanc had given him a fake passport that established an alias of Carré. It was in that name that the house in Saint-Cloud had been rented, and all of them had lived there together. René Tricot, who went by Colette, was dating Mion. Some accounts indicate that she had dated both Weidmann and Mion, and that timeline gets pretty fuzzy. Yeah, journalists were pretty quick to take the most lascivious read of that situation that they could, but there's no real clue as to, like, whether or not she had been involved with both men. The motive for all of these murders was basic. Weidmann and his team wanted an income without work. 
This is actually an interesting point, though, because the amount of money that they made from all of these victims is often reported with deeply varying numbers, but none of them are really huge. Papers reported that over the course of the murder-slash-robberies, Weidmann's crew amassed anywhere from 3,000 to 22,000 francs. It's unclear where any of those numbers come from, and some may have included the money that Blanc was paying out or loaning Weidmann. Mrs. Keller was buried in a cave in Fontainebleau Forest, 55 kilometers south of Paris. When she had arrived at the train station to meet her new employer, for she had been told that she had gotten the job, she was met by two men claiming to be there at the behest of her new boss. They were driving Koufi's limousine, so Keller was impressed and believed them and got in the car, only to be shot once they were away from the busy train station. When police recovered the body, Based on Eugen's confession, her shoes were missing. This was something the French press thought might indicate some sort of fetish on Weidmann's part. There was one odd clue in Keller's final resting place that Weidmann had no explanation for. A photograph of him was found near the body. Yeah, and to give you the spoiler, there's no follow-up to that. They never really resolved that in anything that I read. In the case of theatrical agent Roger Leblanc, Weidmann had explained they had responded to an ad that Leblanc had placed for a salaried job that required a young man, well-educated business knowledge. Million had answered, feigning to be a loan agent interested in financing a play with Leblanc. After some correspondence back and forth, Million and Tricot arranged to meet Leblanc to discuss a possible deal, and they told Leblanc that he should bring several thousand francs to cover the fees needed to secure the loan. At the meeting, they told Leblanc they wanted to introduce him to another business associate who lived in Saint-Cloud. So they drove to meet Weidmann, and Roger Leblanc followed behind in his car. When they got to the house they all shared, LeBlanc was killed and his car was driven to a road in Neuilly and left, with LeBlanc's body wrapped in the curtain. The exact details of what led to Farmer's death remained somewhat vague. Weidmann confessed to killing him and told police where the body was, but refused to give additional details. For a while, there was even some confusion in the press about whether Farmer was one of Weidmann's gang before being killed, but that didn't seem to prove out. But Weidmann did obviously take Arthur Schott's business card to use for his next ruse, which was contacting Le Sobre over a potential rental property. After discussing what the client needed, Le Sobre felt that he had just the right property and arranged to meet the man he thought was shot at a Saint-Cloud home. In this instance, Weidmann shot his victim in the empty rental and left him on the spot after taking his money and driving his car away. So it seems like all of the crimes are solved at this point, because Weidmann told the police a lot, and they sort of are, but the trial of Weidmann took a long time to happen, and his execution led to a lot of discussion about the death penalty in France. So we are going to end here on this rather somber note, and we will pick up with all of that in the next episode. Do you have some listener mail to tide us over till then? Yes. Listen, this is a lot of murder, so I wanted to do something that had some joy in it for listener mail. Um, And this is from our listener, Angela, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Sorry if this is long. Feel free to paraphrase where needed. 
I don't find this especially long. Uh, she says, I tend to ramble on when I'm excited. Um, I love your show. And even though I've been listening for several years, it really helped me get through the start of the pandemic as I was sewing masks and burned the midnight oil. I have been dancing since I was little and owned the dance studio I danced at, started by my mom for the last five years now. So having a creative outlet when the world was shut down was definitely a necessity. I was catching up on a few backlogged episodes for me since life has returned somewhat normal for me now, and I heard mention of a love for a goth nutcracker. As a goth girl myself, I was totally agreeing with you out loud to my floofy friends. Don't worry, picture's coming. There is an adult-only dance studio near me that this past season did a nightmare before Christmas in the style of the nutcracker for Halloween time. Their reasoning was adults are busy during the holiday season, so doing something at Halloween seemed to make sense. Since I own my own studio, I was not able to participate due to the duties that go along with owning a dance studio, but what a cool idea. I thought this would be right up your alley. It is. Uh, Keep up the great work, and as promised, enjoy the pictures of my floofs. We have Maggie, our elderly striped kitten, who has always been tiny and weighing in at a staggering eight pounds. She's the moodiest of the pack. Then we have Magic, who is a recent addition to our pack. He was my sister's, then my parents, and now mine. He has since begrudgingly converted to an indoor-only cat. He's the all-black chonky boy at 12 pounds. He loves anyone and everyone and will sit in your lap if you're stationary more than half a second. Then we have the biggest of the floofs, our doggo Luca. He's the best dog and was a perfect fit for our family that we got right before the pandemic hit. He went from the traditional working family dog to being the I love that my mom works from home now dog since he can sleep on my bed or the couch all day. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Angie. This is, okay, the animals are cute. Oh, can I just tell you, I'm going to fantasize about a Nightmare Before Christmas Nutcracker for I don't know how long. It's going to occupy a significant portion of my days going forward. Um, And all of these babies are so cute. I, too, have a teeny tiny cat that uh, thinks he runs everything and several large ones as well. I tend to go to extremes, apparently. That dog is the cutest thing I've ever seen (laughs) and has the great soulful eyes that say please bake me a dog cake. And I would if I could. Uh, There's one of the pictures she sent is very cute because it's the dog kind of like lying down and looking at the cat while it eats. And I don't know why to me that is magical. And I love a black cat. I need more in my life. Uh, So thank you so much for offering us this balm to all of this murder talk on this episode and just for sharing all of your pets and that amazing Nutcracker idea with us. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History, and you can subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.